0: Hello everybody, today we're going to be talking about pulmonary embolism, and in specific, some of the emerging literature concerning the treatment of massive and submassive pulmonary embolism. But before we get into things, let's zoom out on the 10,000 foot view and review some things. Now, first, we all know that a pulmonary embolism is a blood clot that's traveled to and lodged in the pulmonary arterial circulation, and many of these clots are asymptomatic. In fact, some say jokingly that one of the many purposes of the lungs is to serve as a filter for blood clots. Now, when the clots do become symptomatic, the signs and the symptoms they cause are multitudinal, often vague, and in the very least, the symptoms they cause can overlap with a number of other disease processes, and this often leads to the maddening self-questioning during a patient workup of, could this be a PE? Well, if the chief complaint is anything from chest pain to shortness of breath to weak and dizzy or anxiety, the answer to that question often is, well, yeah, it could be, Fortunately, this podcast is not about those patients with vague, subtle symptoms. We'll have to save that for another day. Note, today we're going to be talking about those patients who have significant enough pulmonary emboli so as to cause hemodynamic impacts, if not frank, cardiovascular collapse. Now in a minute, Dr. Grace Lagasse, Claire O'Brien, and Carrie Gorder will lead us through a discussion of the literature surrounding the treatment of patients with submassive, also termed intermediate-risk PEs, as well as massive or high-risk pulmonary emboli. Now these are patients who have frank hypotension or evidence of right ventricular dysfunction and strain as a result of increased pulmonary arterial pressures. And this can be detected by bedside echo, radiographically by CT chest using RV to LV ratios, and cardiobiomarker elevation. So why do we care? Well, there are a number of studies looking at these patients showing that the presence of RV dysfunction is associated with significantly increased risk of short-term mortality. And the increased risk of short-term mortality has prompted the search for a more aggressive treatment than standard anticoagulation for these patients to include the use of thrombolytics. And that's where we'll continue our story today.
1: I'm Carrie Gordon, I'm one of the third-year residents. I'm Grace Legacy, I'm also one of the third-year residents. And I'm Claire O'Brien, one of the third-year residents. And we selected three papers to talk about P.E.,
2: uh, just by way of background, uh, there's about 100 to 200,000 annual deaths attributed to pulmonary embolism. And the people who do survive end up having pretty significant long-term morbidity, um, usually based on sort of right heart failure. Uh, and for most of these patients, anticoagulation has been the mainstay of the therapy for a long time. But as new therapies have developed, fibrinolysis uh, was added to the treatment algorithm. However, there have been some problems with fibrinolysis. Even though these advanced therapies have the potential to reduce morbidity and mortality, they're not without risk. And I think Claire is going to talk about that a little bit. So clinicians and researchers have been looking for safer ways to treat massive and submassive PE, such as catheter-directed treatment. So we thought that it was important to understand the role of catheter-directed treatment for massive and submassive PEs, as well as potential other options for patients who have contraindications to systemic anticoagulation or thrombolysis who have failed thrombolysis or have pretty significant hemodynamic instability. So we chose three papers that were fairly seminal papers in the PE realm that highlighted the variety of treatment options for acute massive and submassive PE and addressed some of the clinical challenges and areas for improvement going forward. So I think Claire is going to start with her study.
3: All right, so PITHO, uh, this was a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial that was published back in 2014 and it addressed the role of fibrinolytic therapy in patients with uh, intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism. This study randomized two groups with confirmed diagnosis of intermediate-risk PE to receive either tenecteplase and heparin or heparin alone. So they were able to get uh, 1,005 patients from 76 different sites in 13 countries, and they were included um, in an intention-to-treat analysis. Uh, Intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism was defined in this study as an acute PE with uh, less than or equal to 15 days of symptoms in normal intensive patients who were 18 years or older and who had confirmed right ventricular dysfunction either on echocardiogram or CT and also had evidence of myocardial injury by, as measured by an elevated troponin. The primary endpoint in this study was composite of death from any cause or hemodynamic decompensation within seven days of randomization. The, the secondary outcomes were death within seven days, hemodynamic decompensation within seven days recurrent PE within 7 days, death within 30 days, or major adverse events within 30 days. Importantly, in this study, they also looked at safety outcomes, which included ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke and moderate or severe bleeding within 7 days. The patients in this study were randomized within 2 hours of a phys- physician diagnosing them with an intermediate risk PE. The treatment group received a single weight-based IV bolus of tenecteplase, while the control group received an IV bolus of the same volume and appearance of tenecteplase of a placebo. Both groups uh, were given a heparin bolus immediately after randomization and started on a heparin infusion. The results in the study uh, did demonstrate a statistically significant difference between the two groups for the primary outcome, which was death or hemodynamic decompensation. But it's really important to note that the efficacy was driven by prevention of the hemodynamic decompensation and did not detect a statistically significant difference in the rate of death. Analysis of the safety outcomes demonstrated a statistically significant difference in the rate of both major bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke with higher rates occurring in the treatment group receiving tenecteplase. Overall, in this trial, fibrinolytic therapy was associated with a 2% risk of hemorrhagic stroke and a 6.3% risk of other major bleeding. Ultimately, I think this was a well-designed study, but it's important to evaluate the clinical significance of their primary outcome. The authors in this study defined hemodynamic decompensation as the need for CPR, a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 for 15 minutes, the need for catecholamine administration, or a drop... of systolic blood pressure by at least 40 millimeters of mercury for 15 minutes with signs of end-organ hypoperfusion. Given this broad definition of hemodynamic decompensation that was used in this study, I think it's very important to weigh the increased risk that they found of intracranial hemorrhage and other serious bleeding against the benefit of reducing the hemodynamic decompensation. It is important to note that a greater number of patients in the placebo group did go on to receive rescue open-label thrombolysis. In conclusion, the study did show that a single bolus of tenecteplase reduced the composite of early death or hemodynamic decompensation in patients with intermediate-risk PE, but was associated with an increased risk of intracranial and major bleeding. So while I think this study may not be practice-changing in and of itself, it did demonstrate a need to look into other treatment options that may reduce the risk of hemodynamic decompensation while minimizing the risk of bleeding, such as catheter-directed thrombolysis or low-dose thrombolysis.
2: And that's a pretty good segue into Seattle too, which is the second paper that we looked at that was published like a year, year and a half ago. And it was a prospective single arm multicenter trial um, that looked specifically at ultrasound facilitated catheter directed low dose fibrinolysis for massive and submassive PE, building on what uh, the PICO study had done. Specifically, it looked at the Ecosonic and Novascular System, which is here to refer to as ECOS. It's the only FDA approved catheter based treatment option for high risk PE, and this was the largest study that evaluated it. Building on the previous study that Claire talked about it, we know that fibrinolysis works, but at a pretty high cost. So this study was the largest of its kind that looked at a more targeted, low-dose approach to treating these patients. It was performed across 22 sites in the U.S. and enrolled patients from early 2012 until 2013. People were eligible for the study if they had an acute PE, which was defined as 14 days of symptoms or less, and it was a proximal PE, so a main or lower pulmonary artery, And they showed signs of right heart strain on CT or echo uh, with an RV to LV ratio greater to or or equal than 0.9. The primary safety outcome was major bleeding within 72 hours of the procedure, and the primary efficacy outcome was change in the RV to LV ratio within 48 hours of the procedure. They also looked at the PA pressures as a secondary outcome. There are slightly different definitions of what constitutes a massive versus a submassive PE, and each study defines them a little bit differently. This evolution uh, has changed, um, and the American College of Cardiology has some different definitions now, but in this study, they define massive PE as a patient with signs of cardiovascular collapse, including syncope, cardiogenic shock, hypotension, cardiac arrest, And submassive PE were patients who were hemodynamically stable but had evidence of RV dysfunction, which includes uh, elevated BNP or troponin due to their PE. So everybody in the study got unfractionated heparin at the standard dosing that we give to everyone who has PEs. And that should be done with all patients who who have PEs despite any advanced treatment that they're going to end up getting. They enrolled 150 patients, 149 of which ended up getting the ECOS. One died before they could get the catheter in them. Each patient got a fixed-dose regimen of catheter-directed TPA, which was 24 milligrams compared to the usual 100 for the systemic thrombolysis that people get. If you had a unilateral PE, you got a single catheter for 24 hours. And if you had a bilateral PEs, you got two catheters for 12 hours. Looking at the RV to LV diameter ratio, that was assessed by another chest CT about 48 hours after the procedure, plus minus like six hours. They also looked at the change in PA pressures as a secondary outcome immediately after the procedure, like while the patient was still in the lab. They overall found a 25% decrease in the RV to LV diameter ratio at 48 hours and a 30% decrease in the PA pressures by the end of the procedure, which is pretty impressive. Data was about the same for the massive versus some massive PE patients. With regards to bleeding risk, which was a main point of the study in comparison to the previous trial, they classified events sort of into major or minor bleeding risk, but they were really broad in how they defined what constitutes a major bleeding event, much more so than previous or similar studies, so they basically overestimated the bleeding risk. That bleeding risk that they termed major was intracranial hemorrhage, bleeding that caused hemodynamic collapse, or any bleeding at all that required a transfusion, which is different than a lot of other studies. They documented 17 major bleeding events, accounting for 10% of patients in the study, but only one of these bleeding events required any sort of hemodynamic support with vasopressors, and none of them were intracranial bleeds. So this is by far the largest study that's examined the ultrasound-facilitated catheter-directed thrombolysis for PE. It showed efficacy with improvement of the RV to LV diameter ratios and safety with improved bleeding risk compared to systemic treatment, specifically with regards to intracranial hemorrhage. The major downside of the study is it was a single-arm study, so there was no comparator group. It can't be compared with systemic lysis or half-dose lysis or anticoagulation alone, It also remains to be seen how useful the proprietary ultrasound component of the ECOS device is. There have not really been any studies that have looked at ultrasound versus catheter-directed alone. And the small studies that have looked at ultrasound treatment for DVTs uh, have shown no benefit to the ultrasound component. But overall, the study did demonstrate efficacy and safety of this method of treating massive and submassive PE.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Gary. So building on that, we're going to talk about the PERFECT trial. So the PERFECT trial stands for Pulmonary Embolism Response to Fragmentation, Embolectomy, and Catheter Thrombolysis. This was an international prospective multicenter registry uh, that gathered patients from 2011-2014, to and it was looking specifically at the clinical outcomes of patients receiving catheter-directed therapy for massive and submassive PEs. Prior to the PERFECT trial, there have been other studies, um, such as the study which Carrie just talked about, Seattle 2, which has shown that catheter-directed therapy is a safe alternative to systemic thrombolysis in these massive and submassive PEs and has shown improvement in right heart strain and in PA pressures in patients who have received these interventions. The PERFECT trial aimed to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of catheter-directed therapy for massive and submassive PEs, but in a prospective, multicenter, and real-world population. So the study enrolled 101 consecutive patients who either qualified as massive or submassive PE. So they defined massive or submassive PEs CT evidence of proximal pulmonary embolism, so a filling defect that involved at least one main or bar pulmonary artery. Massive PE, in addition to this CT qualification, was defined as either sustained hypotension, so systolic pressure of less than 90, or requiring inotropic support. A submassive PE required the CT evidence of proximal pulmonary embolism, as well as evidence of RV dilation and hypokinesis on echo or on CT imaging. Patients who qualified as massive PEs received catheter-directed debulking or thrombectomy, as well as local catheter-directed thrombolytics. Patients with submassive PEs received local catheter-directed thrombolytics only. All patients, after receiving their catheter-directed therapy, were transitioned onto long-term anticoagulation, so bridged either to Lovenox or Warfarin or Xarelto. The authors defined clinical success as meeting three metrics, stabilization in hemodynamics, improvement in RV strain or pulmonary hypertension, and survival-to-hospital discharge. In addition, safety outcomes were also evaluated and looked at major procedural-related complications and major bleeding events. Out of the 100 consecutive patients who were followed in this study, 100 of these patients followed the protocol. The patient who did not have contraindication to receiving thrombolytics and so was a submassive PE that received only mechanical uh, thrombectomy. Overall, 72 patients with submassive PE and 20 patients with massive PE were enrolled in this study. They found that there was clinical improvement in 97% of the patients with submassive PE and in 85% of the patients with massive PE. Six patients died, four in the massive PE group, and two in the submassive PE group. (coughs) Of the patients who had pre- and post-intervention echoes, 57 out of 64 showed improvement in RV strain, which was found to be clinically significant. Of the patients who had invasive pulmonary monitoring, 78 out of 92 showed improvement in their PA pressures after the intervention, which was found to be significant as well. Something that was interesting was that this paper looked at a subgroup analysis, which compared patients who got standard catheter-directed therapy versus those which got the ultrasound-directed therapy, uh, similar to what Carrie described in the previous paper. This showed no significant difference in clinical success between these two groups. Um, the study reported no major procedural-related complications. There were 13 out of 101 patients, or 13%, that had minor complications. None of which were none of which required transfusions or additional interventions. This is a significantly lower complication rate than had been previously reported, and the authors speculate that a specific catheter, the catheter, was not used in this study, since at the time the study was enrolling patients, it had had a black box warning placed by the FDA, and so this was not included, um, which they think is what improved their complication rate. Some limitations of the study was that it was only a registry. It's not a randomized controlled trial. They did not look at any of the long-term data for RV function or pulmonary artery pressures. Um, Additionally, they did not collect any additional information that we would often use in the emergency department to help determine RV strains, such as laboratory results like a BMP or troponin. Um, additionally, because the studies are registry, there is no information about when data was collected, so how long after they received their catheter-directed therapy were then the repeat echoes and pulmonary artery pressures measured. In conclusion, the study found that the clinical success rate for catheter directed therapy um, of massive and submassive PEs in a real world population is consistent with the previously reported rates in previous studies, such as the one that Carrie described earlier. Um, The subgroup analysis suggests that there's no difference in outcome when patients are treated with the ultrasound guided catheter directed therapy versus just standard catheter directed therapy alone. And there's significantly more cost that's occurred with the ultrasound guided therapy. And so um, this kind of opens the door to further studies to look whether ultrasound-guided therapy versus simple catheter-directed therapy alone is
3: really warranted. So knowing what we know now, a patient walks into your ER with dyspnea and chest pain and is found on CTPA to have a PE. How are you going to treat this patient?
1: So I think it truly depends on the clinical picture. If the patient has some sub-segmental PEs with no markers of right heart strain, is hemodynamically stable, and has no contraindications to anticoagulation, I think a simple heparin drip is appropriate for a lot of patients. And those are what the
2: ACC terms low-risk patients. The JCC published sort of a guidelines about interventional treatment for PE and how to risk stratify patients into certain treatment arms, and the evidence really isn't that great, um, but if patients are hemodynamically stable, they're appropriate for systemic anticoagulation only. Those are your low-risk patients. Conversely, if a patient's coding in front of you and you think it's from a PE or they're really seriously hemodynamically unstable, those are the high-risk patients, and they need emergent reperfusion therapy, which may include systemic thrombolysis or depending on your institution, emergent thrombectomy, ECMO, that kind of stuff. I think the art of medicine really comes into play here with the patients who are somewhat in the middle. I think 95% I think of patients are going to be either intermediate or low risk patients. And those are the people that we have to really decide what the best treatment option for them is.
3: I agree, Carrie, and I think the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or the PESI score, can try to help with this. It was originally used to identify patients with a PE who are at low risk for 30-day mortality, but it can also help guide clinicians into risk stratifying some of the more intermediate risk patients.
1: I agree. And additionally, another way to look at these patients is based on some of the other criteria that we discussed in the literature. So looking at the RV to LV ratio, seeing if there's an elevated BNP or troponin, which would move these patients into the submassive category as we now have evidence of signs of RV dysfunction.
3: So here at our institution, if a patient comes in who is hemodynamically stable with a PE, but has an elevated troponin and right ventricular dilation by CT, what would you do for this patient?
2: I think the best evidence states, and admittedly it's not perfect and we're still having ongoing trials, I would, but it would suggest that for people who have some massive PE, we would consider catheter-directed fibrinolysis for these patients in addition to systemic anticoagulation with unfractionated heparin. In our specific institution, this is done by interventional cardiology with an ECOS catheter. Interestingly, a study called Optilize was just presented at a national conference last month looking at super low-dose TPA via an ECOS catheter, up to 4 milligrams. Um, I think they did 4, 8, 12, 24 um, of shorter durations, like 4 hours instead of the 12 or 24 hours of the Seattle II study. And the preliminary data suggests that the results are pretty promising in terms of the safety profile and efficacy. So that's something to look for for an even more safe option for some of these patients who fall into the intermediate risk category who may have you know, soft contraindications to anticoagulation, like they've had a surgical procedure recently um, or may have active
1: cancer. So lower dose TPA may be something that we could use for them. The ACC's best practice statements recommend that each hospital develop a PE response team or PERT to help address these patients' needs quickly. This is a multidisciplinary team that involves radiologists, cardiologists, interventionalists, cardiac surgeons, as well as emergency medicine physicians. With this team, treatment options can include things like systemic lysis, uh, which is, like we talked about earlier, probably best for those really sick, hemodynamically unstable patients or those undergoing cardiovascular resuscitation. Catheter-based treatment strategies such as fragmentation and aspiration, as well as things like surgical embolectomy.
0: So there you have it. Catheter-based thrombolysis is a promising and emerging treatment option for patients with hemodynamically significant pulmonary emboli. There's sure to be much more to come about these treatment options in the years to come. And if you want to read some more or give us your thoughts on this podcast, head over to shrew.com and leave a comment on the blog post. See you next time.